from Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WBFO. This is What's Next Producers Picks, highlights from conversations heard on previous episodes. On today's show... You know, one of the biggest purchases that a family ever makes in America or worldwide typically is them purchasing a home. So if you're undervaluing someone's property, then you're really just decreasing their bank. We hear from CEO of Better Living Interest LLC, Paul Perez, and co-founder and local board president of the Erie Niagara Board of Realtists, Andrew Scott. And we close out with any event you go to before you start talking about the work, before you start talking about what you'd like to do in the community, show up as a part of it, show up as a listener, learn from the people there, endear yourself to them by being curious about what's happening, not in a stereotypical way, but in a way that uplifts and upholds kind of the values of that community and showing that genuine curiosity and being supported. Director of Outreach and Community Engagement at the University at Buffalo Graduate School of Education, Will Green. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. Thanks for listening. We start with Jay Moran's conversation with Paul Perez and Andrew Scott, who discussed the 2023 announcement of the local chapter of the premier network of black real estate professionals and the challenges of home and land ownership within the cities of Buffalo and Niagara Falls. Now, if I'm not mistaken, your, your father was in the real estate industry. This is true. Yeah. This is true. Uh, he's actually my partner, uh, Scott Realty Group. So he's been in for just over 35 years now. That's got to help a little bit, I would think, uh, handle the, the ups and downs of, of the marketplace. So you have to have uh, business wisdom, right? So I, I don't quite have that yet. I just kind of flow, and he understands how to move around each market. Uh, he's seen it all. Uh, when we talk about rates, we're talking about rates that are sitting at seven, five, nearly eight. And he kind of giggles at it because he flipped homes in the nineties at 18 to 20%. Right. right? So when people complain about going from 3.5, 2.7 to now 7.58 and people are deciding not to purchase a home, he's confused. And so with his wisdom, it allows me to help educate people and, and help them understand, hey, listen, um, yesterday the, the market was lower than what it was today. Right. Um, and no matter what the rates are, it's going to be higher tomorrow. Uh, never been in a time in history where the rates were not fluctuating. Right. But what, one thing we did have seen is that the trend says that the market will go up. So uh, you can chase the rates, uh, but then you're going to lose on the dollar. Right. So that alone, you know, helps me get through uh, the ups and downs. Uh, but the ups and downs are the same. Are we still seeing, which I was mentioning this uh, while we were waiting uh, for, for you guys uh, to join us, uh, the anecdotes, the stories that I've heard. House goes on the market, bidding wars kick off. Uh, is that easing up now? So to be honest with you, um, the early part of the bidding wars uh, happened organically. Okay. But as I was talking to uh, my trainee yesterday, I was explaining that at this point in time, the bidding wars are actually intentional. So we're creating the bidding wars. And I'll tell you how. Please. Um, a couple of different um, tactics we use uh, that uh, work together to create the bidding wars. One thing we do is we do uh, what was necessary back in early pandemic, which is called a delayed showing negotiation. And what that is, is uh, you put a home on a market and no one can see it and or bid on the property to a certain day, certain time. And then you'll call for all offers to be done, uh, to be in uh, highest and best certain day, certain time. 
it was necessary at the time because we weren't able to go into the homes uh, and in groups as we were previously, you know, open houses, you have 30 people in a house. Uh, You couldn't do back to back showings. They wanted to wipe down the house. They thought COVID would fall to the ground in between showings. So they kept (laughs) a gap in between the showings. We were ignorant to what this thing was. Um, So we had to stretch out the the time that we allowed people to see the property because very few people were able to see it in a short period of time. Very quickly, I would say by the time of probably winter of 20, uh, we found out what COVID really was and how it really worked. And uh, we didn't have to do it that way. Um, they allowed people in homes as long as they were masked up, gloved up, had to wipe down. By 21, it really wasn't necessary any longer, right? We right. kind of coming off the wipe down. You're still masked up, but people were able to get in the homes back to back. So allowing that delayed showing negotiation, allowing that to happen, uh, worked for the time, but then it created something different. What it created was you're holding people up who really want the home, right? People who are really going to be um, uh, who, who are really going to come aggressively day one, right? Like we, like we used to. You love it, you buy it. You come with a strong offer, and it's over. But you held those people up for five days, seven days, ten days. Some people. Three weeks. I don't understand what some of the agents were doing, uh, but it was pretty much about a week. You would say five to seven days you would hold the, the offers. So what you're doing is you're gathering all of these other people and allowing all of these people to come in, right? So it's kind of like a crab in a barrel type of thing that you created <laughs> intentionally. Right. It wasn't intentional at first, but we found that it worked and we found that it was tactical. Uh, so that was the one part. And then the other part is kind of playing into that still is, is telling people that even though we're calling for highest and best, that your offer is really close to another offer, right? So now you've already called for highest and best. You've lined all these people up. They're all in the door. They've waited to get to this point. And then you turn around and go round robin and say, hey, everyone, uh, your offer was really close. We're going to give you one more final shot at this thing. Right. Right. So people already have maximized in their mind, maximized the most that they were willing to to give. Right. And at this point, now they've got to squeeze a couple more dollars out because they feel like they have to beat someone else, right? And to be honest with you, a lot of the times – they were the highest offer. But by going back and circling back, now they come with another $5,000. I did it once yesterday and once on Monday. Oh. Uh, my client said that, was told that they were in second place. My cli- Both of my clients said, well, one said I'll do another seven, and the other said I'll do another five. Uh, I said, I mean, if you're not comfortable with that, then let's not do that. It works for the listing agent. It works for the seller uh, in their best interest. Um, but it doesn't work for the buyers. So really, honestly, over the last three years, that's happened so much that you have buyers now that just don't even want to mess with the market because that's what they've seen all across the board. They've seen 40 over, 100 over, you know, right. minimum 15 over for uh, for a listing, and now they don't want to shop any longer. So it worked, right, for the time that it worked for, but it's caused issues, and it now is causing the market to shift inorganically. Um, so now you have buyers that are not even going to shop right now until the market, quote, unquote, cools down. Uh, and the market cools down like the weather, right? So <laughs> we've seen, uh, we'll just talk about price decreases. I actually have a post that I'm going to put today on social media. Uh, in the last seven days for the single family market in the Erie Niagara region, I've seen 537 price decreases really? in the last seven days. So a major change that's I've, happening right I've, now. I've never seen more than 300 in a week. Right. And that's a lot. Wow, uh, with with the with the new the same new single family homes, uh, there have been maybe eight hundred that went on the market in the last week. We're usually at about eleven right now. So for only eight to go up, but five hundred to drop in price, that shows you that the market is shifting very quickly. Uh, you know, it, it's again I can show you trends over twenty years where every year, same time of the year, same thing happens, but not to this degree. Um, so when we're talking about the market shift. 
It's here. It's now. We're going to slide from this seller's market that we've been having for the last three and a half years into a plateau market. And I'm looking at probably within the next two years, we're going to shift to a buyer's market. Wow. One of the things that I ta- I saw about the local chapter of the premier network of black real estate professionals uh, on Instagram, you guys had a, you're having an initiative about trying to get black appraisers. Yes. Is there really, I mean, are there no black appraisers right now? Is that possible? I've looked under every house, under every building, <laughs> above and beyond, and I cannot find one. Um, and I think that that is detrimental to our uh, black communities or communities of color just in general because we do not have anybody that is essentially measuring the value with a lens of the true value of the community. And it really hurts us. You know, lending, unfortunately, lending is racist in very, very various ways. Yeah. Um, and we need to make sure that we have people in place that understand the community, um, are either close enough to relate to, yet ahead enough to follow true leadership, right, definition. Right. And that understand the inequities that are going on. So when they're at these people's properties, uh, doing cross comparisons in regards to the properties in which these people are trying to buy. They're getting a fair, equitable value, not um, undervalue or undersold um, just because that is what the purchase agreement was or what the bank really wants the criteria to be so that way they can have more built-in equity on that asset. It's interesting because I think this is one of those types of issues that when you start looking at race and racism, don't think that an appraiser would have anything, any real issue to to the, the impact of this. But what you're telling me is because they lack certain, you know, they, they lack a certain experience, for lack of a better term, better or experience in certain neighborhoods, that they, what might be happening is not fair. Yeah, 100%. Hundred um, percent. You know, they, we're all human, right? So we all have our biases that come into place. And you're talking about measuring someone's value of their asset, and it's very much uh, not black and white. We live in a very gray world, especially within lending. And there's a lot of what I will call discretionary powers that come into play. And that discretionary power, if um, not utilized fairly and equitably, right, can be detrimental to a family and a family's generational wealth. Um, you know, one of the biggest purchases that a family ever makes in America or worldwide typically is them purchasing a home. So if you're undervaluing someone's property, then you're really just decreasing their bank right, and making it really difficult for them. And not only just for them, but for their neighbor, for their neighbor's neighbor's neighbor. Because now this becomes the set price for that group of homes. Yep, it it becomes the set price for that community. And then now you will never see, even though this house has the same amenities, it has maybe the same uh, walking distance to, you know, the same supermarkets, laundromats, whatever may have you, um, you won't get the same value. Uh, because you happen to be a black or Latino family living in that house. 
Um, and it's not just indicative to one specific community. You know, it gets generalized in a bigger community. However, it could also just happen to each individual household. I live in North Buffalo. I'm blessed. I'm grateful to to have that opportunity to be in that neighborhood. Again, coming from the South Bronx, you know, I tell people that's the equivalent of the Broadway Fillmore in Buffalo or the uh, Kensington and Bailey of Buffalo. And it's like, if you're a black or Latino person, Unfortunately, living in North Buffalo, your house might be devalued just because you're living there. Even though you got new siding, you have a whole new bathroom, you have a whole new kitchen, um, because you're black and Latino living in this neighborhood, your house is not worth the same as your white um, neighbors and counterparts. That's, I'm going to use the term unbelievable, but I should I should believe it because uh, I'm hearing it first from somebody who understands it much better than I do. Uh I just want to take that, though. When an appraiser comes in to a, a situation, do they have to know who the owner is, anything about them specifically? Is that no. that's an interesting part of this, isn't it? No, they they don't necessarily come in knowing. But, you know, there's a lot of documentation that is being sent over when you're doing real estate transactions. So they tend to definitely get to see some of the names. They can see some of the banking information. They see the the purchase contract, let alone. So if you come across with, you know, Perez as your last name, they automatically know, hey, this person is Latino. You know <laughs> what I mean? So they could see certain nuances that, that come across very blatantly. And then also, too, when they go to the physical property, there's certain things that are there. You know, there's been... Uh, a whole case study of an example of a family, I believe, in the uh, D.C. market area that was a black family, and they went, got an appraisal, and their house came up $300,000 short compared to when they redecorated the interior and put some pictures of white family members oh my. Um, or, excuse me, their white neighbors' families inside of their homes and all of a sudden now miraculously you know an extra 300,000 surplus just got assessed to their property value they didn't change the kitchen they didn't change the bathrooms they didn't change the drywalls they didn't change the siding everything was still the same except the interior had images of a white family compared to previously when it had images of a black family so just those stark differences right there are so blatant um and you know, we have formed the Erie Niagara Board of Realtors, uh, local NARAB, National Association Real Estate Brokers uh, chapter here in Buffalo and in Niagara Falls um, to service Erie and Niagara County to address these inequities in real estate. We're, we're about promoting democracy and housing at the fullest extent. And one of the another, just to back to the appraiser part of this equation, interesting to note that Last year in the Buffalo Niagara region, appraisers made $2 million in fees from their transactions. None of those went to people of color. Hey, man, I mean, there's money to be made. That's the other part of right, right. You know, there's money to be made. I mean, I, I, I tell people, you know, we had actually one of our general interest meetings. We were able to get, you know, through the president, um, a appraiser. What's his name again? Lawrence Herlin. Lawrence Larry Herlin. Herlin. Yep. So he came out and he gave us a great in-depth presentation about what an appraiser is, the type of work that they do, um, how do they go about their comparative analysis, even what's the differences and the tiers of doing residential all the way up to commercial. And there is a tremendous amount of money to be made. Um, unfortunately, even 
within his community and for his family, he kept alluding to there's still not enough appraisers, period, in the market. So there's just a massive shortage um, with that. My nervousness that I have with it is is not just about what the current situation is, but also what the future might be with including artificial intelligence. So we might start looking and seeing, you know, um, brokers such as now Zillow or Redfin and Realtor.com starting to go into the landscape of real estate selling of homes, right? And removing your everyday realtor or removing your everyday real estate broker and then also now filling in the gap of appraisal shortages by doing um, automated uh, appraisals that are generated through artificial intelligence. And if unchecked, we can see even larger inequities and more consistent inequities. And then what are we going to do? Blame it on the machine? Blame it on the operating system? Right. You're going to have to go to the source. Well, who created this, um, you know, uh, uh, formula? Who created this calculation for the AI to say this property is assessed at this value compared to the other one? So it's it's a very scary situation, but we are definitely – Heading this, um, you know, full frontal. Try to get out in front of it. Yeah, Yeah. as a collective. And we're appreciative of that. And we're also offering sponsorships, too. I don't know if that was alluded to, but we are offering some sponsorships uh, for our members. So if you join the Erie Niagara Board of Realtors and become a member, um, we will get you connected through the Appraisal Diversity Institute training. Oh. Um, And the president could speak more to that if he would like. Um, President Scott? Yes, please. Yeah, I, I want to touch really quickly on <clears throat> the AI. So to Paul's point, um, the vice president kind of mentioned how we lean on technology as kind of the uh, safe haven. Right. So we say, oh, well, the computer did it. So it wasn't me. Right. Um, there uh, at our national annual convention that happens uh, the last week of August into the first week of September every year in a different city. This year being in Houston, where our president, Dr. Courtney Johnson Rose is out of. They had a uh, seminar that I didn't actually go to, um, but um, Paul told me a bit about it. Uh, And I've actually spoke to someone specifically who was in that AI space. Uh, The gentleman is a local guy uh, and he is a great has a great conversation about how the algorithms still do what we do, but in a technology way. Right. Right. So although you kind of plug and play, the algorithms understand the it can figure out the genetic makeup of the individual. Uh, it can figure out the ethnic makeup of the individual. And between those two, as well as the income and the area by which the person is at, it knows what you are. So it it, I, it can identify. And then based on that, it can go back and look at the historical trend of people that look like that. Right. So if we're talking about race or ethnic background. We're talking about gender. We're talking about creed. We're talking about um, marital status, um, sexual ch- choice, all all of the fair housing, right? right, all, right. Everything that counts as fair housing, it the computer knows that, and the computer looks at the trend and says, "Well, this looks like it's a thirty uh, six year old black male, uh, divorced, four children." I'm just using myself sure. as an example. Um, makes a hundred a year and based in this Buffalo area. Oh, so let's go back three generations and generationally, this is who they are this is what they do these are are decisions they're going to make so that's not going to be a good subject matter especially so we're talking mortgages and appraisals and so when he broke that down to me I said that is really interesting because that's exactly what algorithms do algorithms know who you are just by the simple information that you put in so for us to leave it to a computer and then just laissez-faire 
that's not the answer either, right? So there needs to be a check and balance system when it comes down to that, and we're going to find that to be a problem very soon. So uh, we're going to have him uh, come out and speak to us in January uh, to that. We're a little ahead of it, but we want to remain ahead of the curve um, because we need to um, we need to kind of be in a defensive mode uh, for those things when they come down the pipeline. Um, so let's we can go fast forward to the appraisal. So uh, ADI, uh, the Appraisal Diversity Institute that um, Paul here mentioned, it's a subsidiary to Appraisal um, Institute, which already existed. Uh, this organization is pretty fresh and new. Um, they raised $1 million from one uh, and then three million, uh, $2 million from another. So collectively, I believe they raised $3 million for sponsorships. And oh, how they've done that is they've connected with, uh, partnered with National Urban League, Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, and uh, J.P. Morgan Chase Bank. When we talk about black appraisers, just as a nas- national level, we only make up 2% on a national level. So for uh, kind of what you were mentioning and it, is that uh, there were $2 million put into the pockets of, that's net, right? So that's what the, actual, the appraisers actually came home with, uh, $2 million. And uh, what I saw was a, just over 8,200 transactions happened um, on a different type of finance levels uh, in our market area, just in the Erie and Niagara market. We're not talking about um, the other counties, right. um, you know, we had a long call with someone from Monroe County today, speaking from the standpoint of Rochester, uh, even though it's Syracuse. So we're looking at from Niagara Falls to Syracuse, there are no black appraisers. Hmm. Uh, and I only looked at the Erie and Niagara region. That's 8,200 plus uh, transactions. Right. And that's not counting the cash out refis, the home equity line of credits, or just people who just want to know what their home is worth. So we're probably talking an upward of maybe nine, maybe 10,000 actual transactions. Not one black person had their hand on that. Uh, so this Diversity Institute is covering, you know, back to the fair housing. They're making sure that people of all positions uh, and all from all backgrounds have an opportunity to come in. Um, they did mention the fact that um, 90% of the appraisers nationwide are white and 76% of the uh, nationwide appraisers are male. So it's, it's very dominated, right? For, by, by so there's a stereotype for it. Most definitely. Uh, and so we are kind of coming on the tail end of what they're doing partner with them. Uh, we met them at the National Association annual conference. And from there, we built a connection with them and also the individual that's the liaison for Fannie Mae. And he said that he was going to send someone here to Buffalo for our April 13th Community Day, which is in our general Generational Wealth Expo month of April, to speak to our people about you know what they're seeing from a lender's perspective. Uh, so it's really exciting to, to know that other people have thought about what we're thinking about. That's a big win. Let me ask you this, uh, and it might be difficult from your perspectives, but we know that an appraiser, if we go through the, the statute just went, he's, he's probably white. He's probably a man, right? Mm-hmm. But in terms of characteristics, what makes a, an appraiser? What, what kind of quali- uh, qualifications? You've got to have training, obviously, but are there some, some skills, some talents that, that an appraiser needs? I mean, wh- you know, who should be? Who are the candidates that we want to to uh, to get to be one of those thirty eight? To um, what would you say about that? Would, would you want to be an appraiser, Paul? Yeah, if I had the time. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think for myself and 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 Andrew and I and doing the work that we're doing with our um, Erie Niagara Board of Realtors chapter that is pretty intensive, and then also doing development 
projects and working our nine to five businesses. You know, he, him as a realtor, um, helping people selling and buying homes, me doing lending on a daily. I really don't have but so sure. much time. But if I did have the ability to. But do you to, see, like, you know your skill set. You know who, your talents. Do you think you'd be good at it? Oh, yeah. I, I what think would it, make you good at it? I, I think it would be a, a good fitting because I'm coming in there with the full intention of. Um, you know, really measuring someone's value of their home fairly and equitably, right? So I think that anybody, and I'm speaking to anyone who's listening to this uh, great, amazing show, if you're interested in doing real estate and you are looking to get your career started, a great way to do that avenue would be to take on the position of being an appraiser. Appraisers make about, their fees are, what, 500 to 800 per listing, so, you know, and you can have maybe up to 25 a week because the demand is just so high, right? So the market hasn't really stopped in regards to transactions of home sales uh, as much. So you can make some really good money and you can do this at a really high rate. And also, too, when you become an appraiser, you're not just an appraiser for Buffalo or for Niagara Falls. Right. You're an appraiser for the whole state. So you can go anywhere. And it's not just limited to any rural situation. And it's also not just limited to any urban situation. You're all-encompassing. So there's definitely ways and places that you can go to consistently to just get that volume going. And you're really one of the centerpieces in regards to generational wealth transfer, because it's not just when someone's buying or selling a home, it also can include when someone is passing and their home is now being transferred to their um, trustee and or someone that was on their will. So they still need to do an assessment of value on the property. So all of those things do matter. And I don't think that that business is ever going to die down. And if you want to, you know, scale up, you can start and build your own team. You can have um, staff underneath you that you can train. Um, and then also, too, you can go from residential into the commercial landscaping as well. So there's so many avenues and ways that you can do this. And I think that somebody with a pure heart and, and a really good, knowledgeable mind, you don't have to be a, a college graduate in order to take on a position. You don't have to be a math whiz. You don't have to be a math whiz. <laughs> okay. You really just need to pass the exam, study put your work in and if real estate speaks to you truly then that would be a great career path for you to take on and you don't have to do any physical labor right all you're doing is more so just taking pictures cross comparing documenting things and you're looking and seeing does this value that they're asking for add up that was ceo of better living interest llc paul perez and co-founder and local board president of the erie niagara board of realtists andrew scott and we close today's show with my conversation with Will Green, an advocate, consultant, and educator who discusses Tremonti Solutions LLC, an educational consulting company that focuses on building cultural and racial literacy and addressing cultural and racial conflicts that happen in schools. You are a Buffalonian, born and raised on the east side. Um, just tell me a little bit about what life was like for you growing up. Uh, so, you know, I'll tell you what, I think people from Buffalo got heart. <laughs> I don't care what people say. We got heart. One thing I remember. So I went to school 53. My father grew up on Glenwood. That was the house that I went to after school. That was the neighborhood Cold Spring that I hung out in after school and before school. 
but also on the weekends. And I remember block parties. I remember elders in the community sitting on the porch. I remember having respect for those elders. I remember the friendships that were formed going to school 53 from kindergarten to eighth grade. I just have great memories of being in the community, running around in the summers, playing sports. It was a good time. Have we lost some of that on the east side? Are the elders still out on the porches? Do they have the ears and eyes of the neighborhood? Well, so it's funny because I guess, <laughs> you know, I'm almost an elder, right? I'll be 50 in February. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, our listeners cannot see you right now, but you look about 32. Well, I'll take that. <laughs> I'll take that. My knees disagree, but, you know, I'll take that. But seriously, though, I think that people my age and older are still concerned about the community. Mm -hmm. But and I don't know if this is just a natural consequence of technology, but you see fewer and fewer people outside involved. You know, I remember you could go on any street any day in the summer and there would be kids outside playing football, sports, double dutch, drilling, skating in the streets. I don't see a lot of that anymore, and not just on the east side of Buffalo, but all over the city. And I don't know what the reason is, but I know that elders in the community who are still on the east side of Buffalo are still concerned. They still have an eye out, but there's definitely this gap between older folks and younger folks in the lines of communication. Talk to me a little bit about black culture in Buffalo. You said the people in the city got heart. What specifically about Buffalo's black culture do you like, do you love, find beautiful? So I'll say this, right? Because, you know, I didn't experience other people from different communities until I went to college. So and I went to Alfred University, you know, that's downstate. Southern mm -hmm. tier, probably about two hours away. But I had an opportunity to meet people from Rochester and New York City and these other areas across New York State. And one thing I'll say is that, you know, the people from Buffalo, we weren't afraid to talk. We weren't afraid to approach other people. Mm -hmm. We had outgoing spirits. And most of the time, we were the ones to kind of start things we were the ones to get the party going yeah um we had kind of like this zest for life and i don't know if it's because you know winter time comes we locked down yeah. <laughs> for the whole winter and then when we get outside we ready to go but it was just definitely something different about people from buffalo even when you compare it to new york city you know um i love my folks from new york and shout out to the people in the bronx who were pivotal friends while i went to college but Buffalo, we brought a little bit of street, but also a little bit of the book smarts, too. So we were versatile. We could adapt. And I think, you know, that's something that's specific to Buffalo as well when you look at, you know, what has happened to black residents. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't much of a culture shock for you when you went to college? Absolutely. <laughs> it was? <laughs> oh, yeah, it was a culture shock. So going to school 53 from kindergarten to eighth grade, having a black principal, Nan Woods, shout out to Nan Woods, five, three high, having black teachers, having a school that was extremely connected to my grandparents and my father, and the communication was back and forth. 
So then I go to Hutch Tech High School, mm-hmm. which probably had we went. I went from ninety five percent African American population at fifty three to fifteen percent at Hutch Tech. I think there were two African American teachers, no African American administrators, and it was a difficult transition. But it prepared me to go to Alfred University, where I didn't have the type of supports that I had it in K through eight. But also there was the community culture shock of going from my neighborhood to a pretty much you know rural area Mm -hmm. so it was it was just it took some getting used to but like I said you know we Buffalo we figured out a way to adapt I was blessed to have a number of friends from Hutch Tech come to Alfred University as well and that probably eased the transition but it was still a culture shock it was still something to deal with you mentioned just going from 53 public school 53 community school 53 yeah to Mm -hmm. uh hutch tech and that kind of lack of support talk to me about the importance of having black administrators black teachers in these classrooms i'll say this right so at school 53 we had good teachers yeah and i think the interesting thing is And this is something that I kind of replay in my mind now as an adult, because some of my friends did not go to school 53 and they didn't have that type of experience. Mm -hmm. So a good teacher is what matters most. Now, going to a Hutch Tech and not seeing that representation, I still had this. And this is another thing about growing up in that time. You respected adults. You respected teachers. 100 percent. Now, what I'll say happened during that time is because of the adverse experiences I had with teachers and administrators at Hutch Tech, I felt like they didn't respect me, so I didn't respect them. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the difference. So I can't really say, oh, it was because they weren't black. We had some black teachers and I had good relationships with them. I just think a lot of them weren't good teachers or good administrators. Mm, okay, that's, a, that's certainly a fair point. Um, we had talked a little earlier about um, confusion. Some people have confusion about what it means to be black and living on the east side. You want to dispel some of those, uh, those uh, you know, rumors and, and, and just, you know, talk, talk to me about that. I mean, I think, so it's stereotype. We stereotype right, people, right. right? We stereotype people. And I've probably experienced this all throughout my professional career. The one thing I will say is this, going back to your last question about the benefit of having black teachers and black administrators, mm-hmm. when I enrolled in college and switched over to education as a major, I didn't miss a beat. It, it, okay. it didn't seem far-fetched for me to be an educator because I saw that, you know? Um, Now, shifting over to this question about the misconceptions, the stereotypes. Yeah. As a professional, I've worked in schools. We know that less than 2% of the teaching population in America are black males. So most of the schools or most of my experiences, I'm one of few, especially as I ascended through the ranks and started to work in the administrative offices of organizations or even on college campuses. So it's interesting because, number one, there's been this shift in 
how we show up for work, right? When we we talk about being authentic. Mm-hmm. And some days I don't feel like putting on a tie <laughs> with a collared <laughs> shirt. Some days, you know, I might have a polo on with a sweater hoodie or something like that, and I may wear sneakers, not shoes. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you this, I don't really know how to feel about it because it certainly still bothers me, but walking across campus and you turn the corner and you meet someone, you know how you turn the corner and you don't know someone else turning? Yep. You could literally see the shock in their face of, oh, <laughs> you know. So it's one of those things where it doesn't bother me, but it's also something that I recognize is because you're not used to seeing people like me in this space. And then, of course, the next question is, well, where would you be comfortable seeing me? Mm. You know, where mm-hmm. would you be comfortable seeing me? And I think if we started to explore that and talk about that, those are some places that are not fully representative of the entire black experience. How do you navigate those waters or how do you navigate those waters initially? Whew. Now, that's a deep question, because that's something I think that started at Hutch Tech. And I mentioned mm-hmm. this, I think, the last time I was here. I remember vocally saying out loud to myself, why don't they like me? Mm. So as a child, you know, 14, you're still a child. Yep. It's acceptance. I just want to be accepted. And I went from high performing, always picked to do this and that star student to the student that's saying out loud to himself, why don't they like me? So I think as you're beginning to develop an identity and want to fit in, then this realization of, wait a minute, I'm not fitting in. and, And what's the problem? Is it me? But as I began to mature and develop into who I was and having that strong foundation of having strong black role models and started to look a little bit into history, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. It's not me. It's how they perceive me based on how I look. And then it became a challenge. Then it became a challenge of, okay, you perceive me like this, but... I've always been a high performing student. I can read very well. I can retain information very well. I can speak very well. I'm going to beat you at your own game and watch how you just crumble under Mm -hmm. how I beat you at your own game. It just (laughs) became a challenge. It just became something that I wanted to conquer and excel and do well in. Chip on your shoulder. Will, in your position at UB, you coordinate all facets of the Graduate School of Education's community engagement and outreach efforts. What type of strategic planning goes into those efforts and what gets you excited to achieve your goals? Um, Well, so the strategic plan for outreach and community engagement is actually embedded in the overall strategic plan for the Graduate School of Education. I believe it's one of the second pillars or third pillar, and it is about engaging the community in ways that are mutually beneficial for the university and the Graduate School of Education, but also for the community. Um, So that does drive the work, especially with that notion of, I'll be honest, right? So Traditionally, when we look at communities like Buffalo, especially Mm -hmm. east side, west side, where you have kind of like disenfranchised populations, Mm -hmm. universities have been seen as someone or institutions that come in and extract. Right. They take out. Right. And they don't build back. So what we want to do is kind of undo that perception 
that we're just coming to take out information. We're going to do these things with you and take what we need in terms of research so we can get published and go on our way. And what we want to do is partner and collaborate with the community to build things to help sustain those communities, to make sure those communities still exist, but also to learn from community members. Like there's expertise in these communities. And how can we find a way to share information from university level to community level and vice versa? So as someone representing UB, how do you how do you get into those neighborhoods? What what are some like of the specific things you do to make those connections? So, you know, luckily for me, I'm from Buffalo. Right. <laughs> um, that always helps. And yeah. And, you know, I, I say Buffalo is a town with a big city attitude. Right. Uh -huh. So Buffalo's not that big. Let's be honest. No. I mean, every, <laughs> the, one of the things we like about Buffalo is 10, 15 minutes. You can get where you need to go. Exactly. All right. So having that type of access to communities is relatively simple for me coming from here. And I'm aware of like cultural norms across the town. Um, I've worked in Buffalo the majority of my professional career. I've developed contacts through education, working in a not-for-profit field. So all those things help. But also I think what's most important is how people feel when you're around them, right? Mm -hmm. One of my goals, and this is what I really try to share with my colleagues at UB, is like, don't show up with your clipboard the first day. Like, show up in the community as a community participant, mm -hmm. right? Any event you go to, before you start talking about the work, before you start talking about what you'd like to do in the community, show up as a part of it. Show up as a listener. Learn from the people there endear yourself to them by being curious about what's happening, not in a stereotypical way, but in a way that uplifts and upholds kind of the values of that community and showing that genuine curiosity and being supportive. That's the secret sauce right there, showing up as a part of the community prior to doing the work. And that goes to my next question, authenticity, and, and having that play a big role in your job and, and trying to, I guess, as you say, telling other people, hey, don't just show up, get your hands a little dirty. Absolutely. I think it's so funny, though, that, you know, in this moment in time, you know, authenticity is really a, a, a key buzzword, right? Oh, right. we need to be authentic. And it, when you look at the history of black people, when were we able to be authentic, right? So in order for me to share this information with folks, you know, being an educator, I think modeling is the best thing, right? Mm -hmm. So traditionally, I would say someone with my background doesn't often end up at University of Buffalo. Mm -hmm. Now, what that means for me is when I sat in the interview, I made sure that this is my authentic self. This is what you're going to get. Like, I'm not going to hide who I am for the purpose of you picking me. What right. I need you to know is that if you pick me, this is the package that you will receive and you will get. So what that means is when I engage faculty and staff on University of Buffalo's campus and I ingratiate to them that when we show up in communities, we need to be authentic. 
I'm being my authentic self. If I'm referencing something from my culture, I'm going to reference it from my culture. Now, if I need to translate for them, I will yeah. unapologetically. <laughs> I'll, I'll go ahead and give you a translation, but I'll also tell them, you can't show up in the community and try and use the language that I use because that wouldn't be authentic, and mm -hmm. they would identify that immediately. Right. But, but you need to understand it. Yes, you need same. to understand it, but you also need to show up as your authentic self. You can share things about your local, regional, uh, geographic, familial culture and be ready to translate that for other people. And the one thing I know about my community is we like people who show up authentically. We won't judge you for being yourself. We might snicker and laugh a little bit at first. Mm -hmm. But if you hold your ground and say, yo, this is who I am mm -hmm. and this is who I'm going to be, you get respect. So there's really no there's really no difference between you in your role at UV and the Will Green that's in the community, in Buffalo's East Side community. Well, what about what about code switching? So sometimes it's sometimes it's needed. Eh, I'm gonna I'm push back against that. All right. I'm not code switching. I, I'm not going to cold switch. Now, the one thing that will shift is language, right? Yeah. But that's a natural thing, right? If you go to Buffalo to New York City is the easiest one, right? So how often do you know somebody who grew up in Buffalo, lived in Buffalo, they go to New York City, they stay there for a year, year and a half, two years, they come back, and they got that New York talk car, yep, right? right? <laughs> it's a natural thing that linguistically you start to shift if you're in an environment for a long time. So I do have the ability to use language in a capacity that other folks can understand it when I get there. But the one thing I'm not doing, like, I'm done with code switching. Like, okay. I had my code switching experience at Hutch Tech. I had my code switching experience early in my college experience. And then I'm like, yo, you got to take me as I am. And that's generally it. The one thing I don't do is cuss a lot. <laughs> I cuss a lot more when I'm in the community at home right. being me. But no, nah, but I, I think code switching has not served us well as a community and as a nation. We talk about United States having all these diverse backgrounds and cultures, but then when the rubber meets the road and we go into business or in a professional world, mm -hmm. we have to leave so much behind of who we are. Right. Well, what is that doing? That's stripping us of our advantage that we have of everywhere else where most other countries are homogenous societies. Yep. We have diversity of thought. So we're going to limit ourselves by saying, nope, you only show up this way, speak this way. Yeah, that doesn't make sense to me. Talk to me a little bit about your work uh, with the Leaders of Color, Cohort 3. Okay, so Leaders of Color um, was started by the Oshai Foundation, Karen Spaulding. She actually began it. I think it's called now the Karen Spaulding Leaders of Color. I and mean, essentially what it is is a program that identifies leaders from Buffalo, New York, who are black, Hispanic, coming from different cultures, and we do like a one-week retreat. Um, my cohort three is interesting because we didn't have the benefit of going to an offsite. Well, we went to an offsite location, but it was all virtual because of COVID. Right. But it was funny because we were like, they. so Ashai 
kudos to them. They kind of put us in a hotel. So after we did the training online, our cohort would kind of hang out at the end of the day, those who were housed at the um, hotel. So we got a really tight knit group. Shout out to my man, Brian Archie, who just won his seat on the Niagara Falls City Council. He's okay. one, yeah, he's one of my fellow cohort three members. We're doing a lot of good work in the community. So what, what did you learn during that retreat? So I'm going to tell you this. It was interesting because we received a lot of training about leadership, about kind of emotional intelligence, about what it means to be a role model in the community. But I think the biggest thing I got from it was the increasing of my network, mm -hmm. right? So doing this work sometimes, number one, it's hard work in the community. Number two, you don't have a lot of time to connect with folks outside of work who do similar work, mm, right? Okay. So I think the best thing that I gained from it is just the tight relationships within cohort three. Certainly when I have things that I need to discuss, I know I can go to them. We got a WhatsApp yep. chat. And when there are events going on, we can rely on each other to the support. So I think the biggest thing beyond all the trainings was just that camaraderie among the group. Yeah, and it's, it, it seems like from what I've been reading, Oshai Foundation is really taking a stand on improving the quality of life for Eastside residents. Yes, and it's been interesting. Shout out to Mark Scott, because I believe Mark Scott has definitely been a champion. Leaders of Color, he actually replaced Karen Spaulding, and he filled that role. And we had a lot of discussions about what it means to be a leader of color what it means for our community, what are the challenges that we face in the community, what do other people from the community face. And I think Mark was listening, along with the leadership at Oshai, to say, okay, well, we have these leaders of color cohorts, but how are we really helping them? And then I think that led to some questions about what it means to be black on the east side of Buffalo, what are some of the historical obstacles to having really a community that is thriving they looked at a lot of dr henry taylor's work from ub urban studies shout out to shout out to the doctor yes and they i mean I, my mind was blown because i didn't know they were going to do it after their strategic plan they came out and announced to us at a leaders of color retreat that they're going to focus their efforts on the east side of buffalo and supporting the black residents to make sure that they are fiscally sound i haven't heard anything like that in all my years of living in buffalo nor have I ever heard one of the leading foundations taking a stance and saying, no, we're going to put our efforts in here to help these people, because if we can elevate them, we elevate the whole city. Yeah. Truly a revolutionary stance. And hopefully other organizations, big, big companies and organizations in the city can learn from what Oshai is doing and do their part as well. I would hope so. I would hope so. Talk to me about your work. You're owner and operator of Tremonti Solutions, LLC. What do you do there? So I've been running Tremonti Solutions for a long time. It most recently became a company with my LLC in the last couple years. But it's something I had been doing as a passion project. I started out as a community tutor, families who couldn't afford traditional tutoring. I would do it for... 10 bucks <laughs> a meal, <laughs> you know, I mean, because I wanted to give back something to the community. But now, you know, as my professional career elevated and I got access to more organizations and more people, they sought out my expertise and it kind of rolled right into the work that I was doing with Tremonti Solutions. Um, right now, I support school districts, individual schools, 
when they need help with culturally responsive teaching and education, dealing with issues of cultural and racial literacy. Um, and I actually, it's something that I really am passionate about and something that I really enjoy doing. There's been schools in the news all over the region um, for, you know, these, these acts of violence. Um, I don't want to get too specific, hypothetically speaking. How would your company help address these issues? So it's funny because when I was here last year in June, mm -hmm. um, one of the things that Bridget and I talked about was the need for these uh, mental health and social emotional supports for students coming out of the impact of COVID. And I believe also dealing with the incident of May 14th in Buffalo, the right. racist shooting in Buffalo, and just how we would need a ton of support. And here we are a year later, and, you know, this is not just a Buffalo problem. There are issues with students all across mm -hmm. the country. And what we need is a way to help students process all these things that have happened. I think adults are, were tired of COVID, right? Yeah. And we wanted to get back to things the way they were. But what we forgot is that we are adults. Prefrontal cortex, fully formed. Mm -hmm. Executive functioning is there. What students missed out on was the safety that consistency provides when you change the dynamic of school. None of us can ever say, at least in my generation and your generation, none of us could say, I don't remember what it was like for that year and a half, two years where I couldn't go to school. Right, right. At a mass scale, mm -hmm. right? So you have students who have this pillar of society one day removed and they say, well, you know what? If you just show up, you get grades here. You, everybody did it differently. So you take this away. You take this pillar of society away. And now you got students like, well, if you can just take it away, why does it matter now? Right. And that's a part of the issue that we see now. How I would approach it, we're going to get to the conversation about hip hop. Yeah, well, we, we got a little over five minutes. A little over five minutes. Yeah. I got you. Right? All right. So I'm a true hip hop head. Right. We celebrating 50 years yes, of hip hop sir. this year. They say 1973. I was born in 1974. So hip hop isn't, you know, my parent. It's my older brother or older sister. Same. Right. Yep. And. I've always been intrigued by the elements of hip hop. And traditionally, we talk about four elements of hip hop, mm. MCing, DJing, breaking, writing, or graffiti, right? And if you look at that, those are elements of a culture. Yes. One of the elements that we don't often hear about is this element of knowledge, right? And for what it's worth, what we have right now, one of the elements of hip hop, MCing, is still. Uh, well, it's changed the world, right? Mm -hmm. So rap music has changed the world, but we're taking MCing away from all of the cultural elements. Knowledge is the key cultural element because if it was not for the youth gangs of the South Bronx coming together and forming a truce because of the murder of yes. a very prolific individual, Black, Black Benji. Benji, Black yes. Benji, Ghetto Brothers, shout yep. out to the Ghetto Brothers. Shout out to my man Topaz, South Bronx. If it wasn't for these young people at that time coming together, and we're talking about gang members, 40,000 gang members in the South Bronx, coming together and forming a truce, saying that our lives are too valuable in honor of Black Benji and his mother's wish to stop the violence, 
you would not have DJing and MCing and graffiti writing and break dancing elevating to the point that it becomes hip hop culture, right? Yep. So if we can take advantage of this culture, if the, if that culture could save black youth in the late in the 70s and mid 70s, mm-hmm. then it certainly can save them now. It certainly can save the world now. So I would be looking to implement a program that takes advantage of the five elements of hip hop. What are some of your favorite albums? Oh, man. Ooh, you got me right there. <laughs> See, I told you, I'm one of those people that don't really have a favorite, but I'll go back in my mind and think about it. Like, first of all, my favorite, like the, the hip-hop song that turned me on to hip-hop, right? Everybody says it's the party joint, right? Hip to the No, nah, not for me. I remember as a kid being enthralled by the message. Yeah, right. The message, the message. Yeah, in comparison to "Rapper's Delight" by the Trigger Hill Gang, yeah, just diametrically opposed. Right. Well, the you know, "Rapper's Delight" was a nice party song. Oh right? yeah, everybody yeah. could dance. But the message, I mean, the name says it all. The message, the first conscious. Yes, record. yes, and it, it even I can't even remember when that song came out, but I know I was young. Eighty two. Eighty two. That was my my year of birth. I wasn't even ten years old, but that song stuck in my head because of the vivid images about what the song was about. So if we go down that path, now don't get me wrong, Heavy Run DMC Head, mm-hmm. uh, BDP, uh, Boogie Down Productions, I think that album, so I don't never, re- listen, the, when I grew up, we didn't. I didn't have money to buy albums, <laughs> so I never knew the names of albums or songs. Right. I just knew the song because I heard it on the radio. Shout out to Buff State WBNY. You stay up late yes. on Sunday night and you just push record, go to sleep, and you wake up with some fire. <laughs> you know. Um, so not a no favorite album, but artist man, artist. We've got uh, about a minute left. The last thing I want to ask you, real quick, what's next for you? What's next for me is to really try to amplify, um, you know, this five elements of hip hop to create a system to change the way students are interacting in schools. Um, I think that's absolutely what's needed. Uh, I think we don't do hip hop justice. You have some teachers who implement elements of hip hop in their class. Oh, make a, a hip hop song about math. I think we're missing the boat because it can be a tool for social emotional intervention. It can be a tool for academic adventurement or intervention. It can be a tool for creating culture within schools that is respectful. So that's really what I'm looking to do in the future. And that will do it for producers picks. We would like to thank our guests, Paul Perez, Andrew Scott, and Will Green. If you missed anything or would like to hear it again, you can get this program as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on the Amplify BTPM app. Each episode is also online at WBFO.org. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. Thanks for listening.
This is the Buffalo Toronto Public Media History Bite, bringing you a peek into significant historical events for the week of January 15th through January 21st. I'm your host and program director, Tom Barich. The Buffalo chapter of the NAACP was officially founded on January 15th, 1959. January 15th, 2023, yes, that recently, Buffalo State College officially becomes Buffalo State University. And while we've had some chilly, windy days in western New York lately, there was a record set on January 18, 1899, when the temperature bottomed out at zero degrees Fahrenheit and winds were clocked as high as 77 miles per hour. The Buffalo Museum of Science was dedicated officially on January 19, 1929. And big news at the time, Edna L. Smith becomes the very first female bus driver in western New York on January 20, 1953. You've been listening to the WBFO History Bite. Discover more stories about Western New York's past on the Buffalo History Museum's website. Learn more at buffalohistory.org. For Buffalo Toronto Public Media, I'm Tom Barich. Mm-hmm.